So trust that you're doing well tonight. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 tonight. Uh, for those of you that maybe are guests or this is your first time with us, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, there's a Bible in a seat rack in front of you. Uh, just so you know how to follow along, I don't want to presume that anyone has uh, always been reading the Bible or this wouldn't be your first time reading it. The big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. I want you to be able to follow along with us because I think it's very vital just to say this from time to time. Guys who stand up behind pulpits who preach from the Word of God should always be referring back to what they're talking about because it isn't the opinions of man that change people. Otherwise, this is no different than any legislative speech that's given on the floor of any house or senate or assembly in the union or any state of the union address that's given by any president ever. It does, if we're saying that there's something uniquely different about preaching from speaking, it needs to be because we're referencing the Bible. And so we're going to go there multiple times tonight, and you're going to see that as we hunker down in these two verses. So if you're there in Colossians chapter 2, if you'd stand with us for the reading of God's word tonight, want to consider uh, tonight a call to faithfulness. A call to faithfulness from Colossians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse number 6. This is the word of the Lord. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. This is the reading of God's word. We praise him and thank him for keeping it so that we can read it together like this tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight and our hearts if they've been prepared by your word and singing the songs that we sang tonight, uh, should be just overflowing with praise for the fact that you are worthy of your name, that we didn't sing anything that's untrue tonight about you and who you are, that uh, you gave up yourself willingly uh, on the cross on our behalf, that uh, the Father sent the Son to uh, be the sacrifice for our sins. And so we want to thank you for that tonight. For the people who are in the room, we just pray that that would encourage them that know you, uh, that they their hearts would already be stirred uh, towards praising you. And then for the people in the room, Father, who don't know you, pray that that song strikes them as odd and uh, that they might be convicted of the fact that they don't know why you're worthy of your name or why we would even sing a song like that. So, Father, we just ask that in the moments to come, you would give us wisdom and clarity as we go through your word. But we're also not arrogant enough tonight to think that we're the only people who preach the Bible in the city who are uh, striving to make gospel advances even tonight. And we think of Cherry Street Baptist Church and Kevin Adams as he leads the college ministry there. Father, we just ask that you would watch over them, that you would protect them, that you would uh, pour out your blessings on their ministry as they seek to engage college students uh, for your glory and the city's good ultimately. And we also think of Stonebridge a Community Church and Michael Lackaby as he pastors there, that you would watch over that flock, that you would give him wisdom as he seeks uh, to, to minister faithfully uh, to that congregation and reach the city of Nixa. God, we just ask that you would, that we would be able to rejoice with him as great gospel advancement is made in his city. And Father, tonight we know we're blessed. 
we want to be careful not to run past this too quickly. That in a room of over 50 people, there are over 100 Bibles in this room. There are people here tonight who will hear the truth of the gospel. We know that there are people in and on our globe that don't know you and have never heard of you. I think of the Gowari people in India and the Baderi people in Sudan. God, I pray that if you would see fit to raise up students from our ministry to go and reach these people. From our church, from the churches in our city that are faithful to proclaim uh, the message, the true message of the gospel. uh, That those people might be reached. Ultimately, not so we can be prideful and say, look what we've done and look who we've sent. But ultimately, so that you would receive glory and honor that is only uh, worthy of who you are. So be with us now as we make our way through your text. Be with us. May our hearts be pliable and sensitive to how you would change us and mold us and shape us into your image. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated tonight. I find myself in an odd place trying to write the introduction to this particular sermon. A student texted me uh, earlier today and asked me how sermon prep was going. And I said it was good. I had done everything but the introduction and the conclusion, which... The some who teach on preaching are two of the most important parts. And I found it difficult to segue into our text tonight because I know exactly what the text says. In a sense, uh, I've studied it and I'm prepared, I think, to the best of my ability to exegete or to teach on what that text is saying. But because I think we live in a weird time. We live in a time where um, there's a new push for hyper-conservatism especially in the church world. Um, one need only to get onto YouTube and, and, and Google, or not get on YouTube and Google, but get onto YouTube and search. You can Google for these people. Uh, there's a, a new movement of the group that I came out of um, that make the church that I went to growing up look like it's completely liberal. I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church. There's a new group that's, come out of that movement Um, I thought it was crazy when they were like the women can't wear pants and you better go to sleep in a coat and a tie Um, these guys make the people I grew up with look like they're basically hippies like it's just craziness so you have this hyper conservatism that's on one side of the evangelical world and then you have a hyper liberalism that is also infiltrating the church where we're talking about disconnecting the Old Testament from the New Testament. You don't need the Ten Commandments anymore. You don't really even need uh, the Pauline letters anymore. Just read the red letters of Jesus. That's enough. If Jesus said it, it's okay for me. Never mind the fact that 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Never mind that. Don't read that. So you've got people who are on that spectrum, and you have people who are on the other spectrum, let alone you move in out of the Christian world, and we live in some perilous times culturally. Hyper-conservatism, again, could lean towards things that are just not even worthy of calling conservative, just hateful, but it's under the guise of being quote-unquote conservative. 
then you go to the hyper-liberal. Saw that yesterday. I don't think it's a coincidence. The 64th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. But as our culture continues to spiral out of control, we see more and more legislative agendas towards the murder of innocent children. And look, if you're like, I didn't come here to hear a political speech, I'm just going to tell you this. When we talk about certain things, Christians get bashed over the head for being political when it comes to the issue of abortion. And I just have a hard time swallowing that pill because in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created man and woman in his image. In his image, he created them male and female. So we're saying, Christians are saying, they have a life, we have a life agenda. We're not just pro-life when it comes to babies. We're pro-life when it comes to all of life. And Christians need to be stronger in this area. We're not just pro-life conception to birth. We're pro-life conception to death. So that means we we care for our elderly. We, We care about the injustices that are done to people regardless of race, creed, or color. Because we care about people because they're made in the image of God. We care that people might be distorted by what the culture says about their sexuality or their gender. And we want to reach out and help. And a lot of times Christians are guilty of narrowing that. And so tonight as we look at two verses, and as the Apostle Paul now in chapter 2 is knee deep in addressing the Colossian heresy... I think this particular passage finds us at a pretty fitting time. And that fitting time is not more Christians. you got to be careful. I know this may offend some in the room. I don't really care. Because I think this is true and biblical. We need less Christians who are wrapped in the red, white, and blue. Who are wrapped in Christ. We need less Christians trying to make the Bible less difficult for people. I don't mean like make it easier for them to understand. I mean trying to make it say, well, that's not what it means or that's kind of culturally irrelevant. That passage doesn't apply anymore. Friends, if it's in the Bible, it still applies. Now, you may have to do some work to get to that particular point, but if it's in Scripture, it's still in play. And so tonight, what tonight's sermon is, is a clarion call, what I hope will be a crystal clear call for a faithfulness and commitment to biblical orthodoxy, or what we might say is a call to faithful living as a Christian. So tonight, and I hope this doesn't shock you, but I only have two points, two points from our text tonight that I think will help us to understand how you and I are called to be faithful Christians. Friends, if we want to see our world turn upside down for Jesus, and I I think that's what our world is waiting for another generation of young Christians to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of the junk that is promoted as Christianity that has nothing to do with the Bible, and I'm going to get back to what the Bible says. And whereas a group of people might be under the impression that we need to make America great again, I think there's a generation of Christians that need to make Christianity Christian again. Less Jesus t-shirts, more Jesus boldness. 
less cultural hype, singing songs that talk about Jesus or maybe reference him, but it's kind of unclear, more songs promoting the exclusivity of Jesus. Less Broadway, more narrow way. And not narrow meaning you have to dress like us, talk like us, look like us, but narrow in the sense of the only way to Jesus Christ is by faith alone in Christ. So what does that look? Well, first it looks like Christians who are embedded in Christ. Look at verse 6. First phrase. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. We'll just stop there. We might be tempted in this particular moment, in this reading, given what we've already studied in the book of Colossians, to think that the Apostle Paul is referencing the Colossians' salvation. But here, he's actually not talking about their conversion to Christ, rather their reception of the truthfulness about Jesus Christ. We could say, while they've already been converted, or they've already come to know Christ, The Apostle Paul is reminding them of their need and the responsibility of receiving that sound doctrine that has come to him that convinced them to believe in Jesus Christ. While Paul here, David Powell writes, is not primarily referring to receiving Christ Jesus as one's personal Lord, he is referring to the reception of the traditions concerning Christ Jesus the Lord. You might say, David, why are you talking about traditions? Traditions are a bad thing. Traditions might be a good thing. In the sense of like, some of you have a tradition of uh, maybe you you do something special together as a family at Christmas time. Um, I know of one family tradition on the 4th of July of trying to kill each other with fireworks. And no one ever seems to die despite all their best efforts. We're not talking about tradition in the sense of my family has done this. Or the dead tradition that often infiltrates and kills churches of the we've always done it this way type tradition. The, well David, why are you moving the announcements to the middle of the songs? And why is somebody praying for missionaries? Like we've always done This way, and my response would be, well, you haven't been here long enough to know that we regularly tweak things. Not that type of dead tradition. I'm talking about tradition, meaning traditional doctrine, orthodox, or right theology. Our generation is unaware, would be the kind way of saying it of the different costs associated with being able to gather together as believers. We might be unaware, again, a kind word, to describe Sunday night where we sat in church and watched as believers were baptized and rejoiced in that, even to the end of the baptismal service where our pastor held up a new member under the water a little longer than the rest. What you're unaware of, though, is that in the 1600s in England, 
the people who believe that after you came to know Christ as your Savior, that you should be immersed bodily in water, were actually taken out in the middle of the English Channel, had ropes tied around their hands and their feet. They attached large millstones to the uh, feet, uh, the rope that was attached to their feet, and said, here's your baptism, and pushed them into the English Channel only to drown and die. So as we sit in a comfortable sanctuary and we sit in a comfortable setting to hear the doctrines of Christ proclaimed again tonight, we're sometimes unaware of how much blood has been shed for those things to trail down to us. And in a time and an era when the Colossians were being told, it's Jesus Christ plus this deeper level of knowledge Paul's saying, don't buy into that. Be reminded of what we taught you concerning Christ Jesus. You have received it. It's become part of you. It's important to recognize that the point here that Paul's establishing is not that the Colossians haven't submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not that they haven't submitted and actually became Christians. But they need to be reminded that they have received the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. And I think we're in the same danger. We will bend on everything around us to make everybody feel more welcome. In an effort to downplay and water down Jesus Christ. And I'm just here to remind us tonight that we cannot afford to do that. You want an example of what happens When this takes place, go home tonight and read about the formation of the Presbyterian Church of America out of the Presbyterian Church United States of America and compare those two bodies. Compare the Lutheran Missouri Synod branch with the Evangelical Lutheran Association and see how far they've come. Or better yet, read about what happened in the late 70s and early 80s in our own Southern Baptist Convention. Out of the three denominations I just mentioned, the only one that was able to recover that commitment to faithful living was the Southern Baptist Convention. The Presbyterian Church of America, smaller than the PCUSA, Same thing for Missouri Synod, but those brothers had to break away because there was a doctrinal slide. And I'm fearful tonight. You may say, David, why do you preach? Every week you're talking about doctrine and theology like it matters. Because it does. As the late R.C. Sproul famously said, everyone is a theologian. You're either a good one or a bad one. Every person is a theologian. You want evidence of that? You think I'm making that up? Go look at the comments that Lady Gaga has made in the last few days about Christianity and what she considers herself as a Christian woman to mean that Christianity is. It's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, but yet there are Christians all over the world, not all over the world, all over the Western world, particularly the United States and Canada, that will read magazines like Relevant Magazine that will try to fit her into what it means to be a Christian. Meanwhile, it's inconsistent. 
because we're trying to fit every major celebrity that ever mentions Jesus' name into what it means to be a Christian. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you want to continue to stay established, is what he's going to use in verse 7 to describe it. But if you want to stay there, first you have to be embedded. I like that word embed because it means inside, surrounded, encompassed. It's all about you. Are you that type of person tonight? Maybe tonight, you're, this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. And you do maybe have a distorted view of who Jesus is. And you might have the temptation tonight to believe that it's Christ plus something. Christ plus my good works. Christ plus my church attendance. Or isn't it fine that I'm just a good person, David? Like, why are you talking about Christ? Because the Bible is explicitly clear that you and I are born with a sin condition. That despite our best efforts to clean ourselves up, to scrub it off of us, we'll never be able to get it off of who we are. Because the disease, as Conrad Mabwewe says, is not on the outside. It's on the inside. And the only solution to cleaning ourselves up is to be completely clean from the inside out. And the only one who can do that is the one who is never dirty from the inside out. Not even dirty on the outside, Jesus Christ. And in order to be our perfect sacrifice, he goes to the cross willingly on our behalf. In my place condemned, he stood. He takes our punishment. And because of that, we're able to experience new life in him, provided one thing, that we place our faith in him alone. Just remember, friends, Roman Catholics believe that you are saved by faith in Christ, plus the sacraments. It's only Protestants and Baptists that would come after it that would say, no, this is a False doctrine. It's not enough for faith in Christ plus something else. It must be faith in him alone. That is what saves us. Friend, if you've never experienced that tonight, we'd love nothing more than for you to be able to know that you know him. Not that you know about him, but that you know him. So if we're going to be faithful Christ followers, first we must be embedded in Christ. But secondly, we must continue in Christ. Not an earth-shattering sermon by any shape or form, but inherently Christocentric. Or we might say Christ-centered. The Apostle Paul moves on in the back half of verse 6 to say, So walk in him. I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul is writing here, he says, so walk in him. And the Holy Spirit goes, if we just tell them to walk in him, they're not going to get it. What does walk in him mean? What does it mean to walk in Christ? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us four participles that are found in verse 7 to help us to understand how we can continue to walk in Christ. He starts with reading verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith 
as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So four participles that help us, four phrases that help us to walk in Christ. The first participle being found in that word rooted. We could say rooted in him. I think John MacArthur is very helpful here. Like a tree with deep roots and rich soil, believers have been firmly planted in Christ. That eternal planting took place, though, at salvation. Remember, we just talked about this. If you don't, you've never experienced what it means to be in Christ, you, you, don't, you will never know what it means to be rooted in Christ until you've been saved. Christ then, after salvation, became the source of our spiritual nourishment. Growth and fruit. So when we talk about walking in Christ, we're rooted in him. It means that our roots should be going deeper into what it means to know Christ. So as we wake up in the morning, we're beginning our day, hopefully, over the scriptures. Maybe some of you do that at lunch. Maybe some of you who get up at by the crack of noon, do it after dinner. We're spending that time letting that word drive us deeper into who we know Christ to be. Some of you have a very shallow understanding of Christ. You know enough of him that you've been saved by him. And you've never pushed in your life to go deeper. And you're fearful that if you do, you might become one of those religious nut jobs. What is it? I've never understood who those people are. You mean people who are consumed by Christ? I don't know. If you're genuinely in Christ and you don't have a desire for him to consume every part of you, I don't know that you really understand what it means to be rooted in him. I think there are a lot of people still. I'm actually quite thankful for a cultural movement that makes it uncomfortable to be a nominal Christian. Because I think you're tempted at times to come here for everything other than Jesus. I'm thankful that our church wants to provide a meal for you after church two times a month. Also fearful that that might be the only reason why you're here tonight. I'm, I'm fearful that the only reason why you might come to a, a worship service or a small group is to impress a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That you might be tempted to come just because that's what all of your friends have done for the last 10 years. And you have this really shallow, immature walk with Jesus. You know just enough of him to inoculate you to hell. But past that is nothing. Friend, Jesus is not just a get out of hell card. And I'm fearful that we still fight that tendency for that to be all that he is to us and all that he is about who we are. Some of you, you've sat in church service after church service, hearing sermon after sermon, wrestling with the fact that you don't know yourself to be genuinely converted. And friend, can I ask you this seriously as a friend? Perhaps the reason why you're still unsure of your own conversion is because you've never pushed yourself to know Christ deeper. You know enough of Christ to be genuinely converted. But because you know only that of Christ, 
When you sin, your temptation is immediately to believe yourself to be unconverted instead of understanding the deepness of the grace of Christ Jesus. I think that's, I think it was a game changer for me. Just transparently, it was a game changer for me. I, I think I believed when I was saved that Christ had died for all sins past and present. But what was fuzzy in my mind was that he had died for the future ones as well. And as I would sin and wring my hands going, how can God love someone like me? It wasn't a matter that he had stopped loving me. It's that I had stopped trusting that he had loved me eternally. And that he had purchased me. He had brought me from death to life. And rather than looking to myself to clean up my sins... I should have been pressing into Christ so that the next point of temptation, rather than trusting in myself, I would immediately trust in him. And if I had done that, I think I would have put sin to death much sooner in my own life. Which I think leads really well into the next participle here, being built up in him. The further we go deep, those roots, we begin to, as that tree is, to be built up, to grow in him. To begin to produce spiritual fruit. Some of you are like, man, I'm not producing spiritual fruit like Greg is. Well, first, let me tell you, this is not a competition to see who can produce the most spiritual fruit. But maybe the reason why you're not producing the type of spiritual fruit you'd like is because you don't have the roots that are necessary to produce that type of healthy fruit. If you desire to be built up in him, you must first be rooted in him. This is like, to put it in maybe language that would help me, there are few of us in here who would take a seed and plant it and think that that was the only time we're ever going to see the results of that seed. But yet we do that with the Christian life. We're just like, well, I've been saved, so I'm planted. And who cares if I water it and nurture it and put it out in the sunlight so that it can grow? Friend, maybe tonight the reason why you're feeling so discouraged in your own Christian life and you're like, I'm just not producing any spiritual fruit. After examining your own heart and to regard to your own conversion, maybe the reason why you're not built up in him is because you still haven't done the root work necessary to get the fruit result. And the temptation here can be to make this also one-dimensional. Temptation can be to make this text all about me. This is what the Western world really likes to do. Hyper-individuality, everything's about me. That's why I need you to follow me on Instagram so you can see all of the crap that nobody wants to see or know about me. But I'm out there and I need 83 likes today. It's a hyper-individualized culture. I, I, I want you to think about it this way. Just as you're responsible for seeing your roots grow deep and being built up in Christ, obviously God is doing the growth. But what are you doing to help prune and prepare your friend, your small group, your college ministry, your church 
to be built up in him. You ever get something put on your back? Maybe in life, some of you, you're like, yes, this was every day in high school. Someone would stick something onto your back. You couldn't, you knew it was back there. And you always had suspicions when that particular person walked by you and patted you on the back that they had placed yet again another thing there. But you can't see it. And it's only when a faithful friend comes to help that you're able to remove whatever it is that was placed back there. I think there are a lot of us who are struggling with different sins. We need some pruning to take place in our own spiritual trees, but it's on the backside of our tree. And if a friend isn't willing to come along and tell us that that exists back there, we may be tempted to think it doesn't exist at all. And we might be wondering, why can't I get past this particular sin? Meanwhile, metaphorically speaking, our Christian friends are off to the side laughing at what sin exists in our lives or putting us down or not being able to communicate to us. I think there's a real sense in which the Apostle Paul is saying you need to be built up, but this is a corporate thing. Remember, he's writing this letter to a church, a set out group of believers. So he's expecting that they would watch over each other and make sure that they are being built up together. This means that rivalries, prejudices, assumptions about who's close to whom, who's best friends with whomever, need to die in the realm of a church. But also to make sure that we're not isolating ourselves to only a particular group of people. Because it's when we have fresh eyes looking into our lives, we're able to see some of the blind spots that we couldn't because our friends, albeit loving and kind, can become blind to our own particular sin struggle and make excuses where they should be making conversation. The third participle he references here is just a continuation. Established in the faith as you have been taught. You must be taught regularly. And in order to be built up, you must sit under the regular Bible teaching. Some of you have friends that haven't been in church in months. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable from a church standpoint, but it's unacceptable from a friend standpoint. I'm going to tell you this right now. I've said this before, and I will say it till I die. If one day I stop coming here to preach and teach as a college pastor, I pray that there are enough faithful people in this room They'll be willing to chase me down, make sure and understand what's going wrong in my own life and call me out and pull me back into community. But some of you have friends that you go and you watch a movie together on Friday. They haven't been in the Lord's house in months and you don't give a rip if they don't show up the next coming Lord's Day. And every excuse they give you, you're just like, okay, I have to work. But beloved, if Christians for 2,000 years have set aside Sunday... As a day to worship the Lord. And I understand that in this particular season, you may have to work. But I'm going to be praying and checking that you're looking for a new job that would allow you to gather regularly with believers. Friend, if you can't get out of bed in the morning, I will drive to your house and drag your sorry butt out of bed and throw it in the shower. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have grown together. In the Lord. 
What would our churches look like if everyone who hadn't been here in six months actually came? We wouldn't have room to put them. By God's grace, that doesn't seem to be a defining marker of our church. But friends, I, I am, as a result of regularly looking at the roll sheets of our small groups and sending out messages to people, praying for them, I've become immediately convicted of people that I haven't seen in months. And I'm wondering, if I haven't seen them in months, who else doesn't care that they haven't seen them in months? There's only one application of making sure that we're caring for one another. I'll share this. I got to go quickly because I'm running out of time, which is a pastor's way of saying, hold on, I'm going to go even faster than I've already been going. I remember reading a bio of a church here in town as they were praying uh, for a new pastor to come and, and shepherd their flock. And they said in the description, attracting pastoral interest for people to put their resumes in, our church membership is, we'll just, I'm not going to say the exact numbers, but is like our church membership is 800 people. And regularly gathering together on Sunday, there are 300 people. So we have 800 people as members, 300 some people attending. Does anybody care why 400 some odd members who claim to be part of that local church are not there on a given Lord's Day? Like as somebody who knows what would be the next step as a pastor to take that church, the next step is for the next eight months to track down everybody and then to begin to remove them from the membership roles as they've gone to other churches or put them out for membership because they're not faithfully attending. One of the things that should scare you in a God-fearing way is that knowing that this church has and will make no bones about putting someone out for membership that no longer exhibits what it means to follow Christ. Just because your name is on a membership roll does not mean that you are a Christ follower. And your lack of gathering to be taught what it means to be a Christ follower does not excuse you from church discipline. You have to be here to be established. I can do this in my home. You can't. You cannot. I don't care what Francis Chan says. You can't start a church in your house. A bunch of hodgepodge people. You can do it literally. But brother, you better covenant together. Somebody better become an elder, bishop, overseer. And they better be responsible for the names of the role of the people coming to your house. Because guess what? That's what the New Testament church did. We're infatuated with the home church phenomenon. Because it's more like the early New Testament church. Friends, I don't think they understand the implications of that. Meaning that you would be put out for membership just like if you came to a church in 2000. The early New Testament church made no bones about the fact that if you proclaim the name of Christ, the expectation was that you were supposed to live like it. And friends, if we're going to care for one another, we need to do that with our own friends. Finally, the last participle, he says, abounding in it with thanksgiving. All this, all of these participles should, as we are in Christ and walking in him, produce something so joyous and thankful that it is markedly different from the people around us. And some of you, I, I, I stand in the back 
because I'm not tempted to look over my shoulder and all I can see is the back of your heads. But some of you walk into worship like someone literally either just kicked you in the stomach or killed your dog. Your boyfriend or girlfriend just broke up with you. And if that's you tonight, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But some of you, some of you walk in with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you both look like that. So maybe you need to take some time, seek the Lord, be more joyful. Man, Christians ought to be the most thankful and joyous people on the face of the earth. Not because of their circumstances. Look, life stinks. Life's hard. Life will kick you in the teeth. Like it is, the world is only getting more worldly. But Christians have an eternal joy rooted in an eternal Christ who's rescued them from the domain of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of light. And that ought to produce something different in us. Not only in the way that we live, but the way that we talk, the way that we interact with the people around us, that we genuinely care about them because we're thankful for what Christ has done for us. I often will hear people say, oh, Christians think they're better than everyone else. If a Christian thinks that he's better than everyone else, he's not living as a genuine Christian. Because the reason why a Christian is joyful, because Christ has redeemed him, a sinner needing saving. I stand in front of you tonight, not as somebody looking to condemn, looking to call out, looking to put you down and make myself look better. I stand in front of you tonight as a sinner desperately in need of Christ's grace at 29 as much as I did at 5. Maybe even more so at 29 than at 5. I stand in front of you as someone even more convinced of his own sinfulness. But I'm telling you this, the last Almost 10 years. I don't think it was a conversion experience, but it was something similar to that. As a sophomore in Bible college, as the Lord showed me from his word and from good books and good friends what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you tonight. Where is the joy that exists in your life? Is it rooted in something other than Jesus? Friends, let's be people who are marked out by the joy that resides in us because of what Christ has done in us, for us, and for the people around us. Let's pray.